If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, if you did not bring a Bible today, there is one in the chair in front of you here in the chapel. If you're upstairs in the loft, there's one uh, on a cart back there. You can grab one. Matthew 14 is where we're going to be as we continue this series uh, entitled The One Thing. But before we dive in today, I want to do something that's just kind of fun. It's fun for me, at least. Um, I would like you all to grab your bulletins, okay? Get that bulletin that you got when you came in, upstairs as well. Flip that bulletin over, and someone here in the chapel and someone upstairs in the loft, uh, there's one person who has a blue sticker on the back of your bulletin. Who has a blue sticker on the back of your bulletin? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Right there. Okay, and I'm sure we got one upstairs too. So before, let me tell you what we're going to do here, okay? Now you're scared, right? You're to- what is he, he going to do? <laughs> Uh, so this week, something of incredible significance happened in our community. And, and, and I know that many of you, you've been anticipating this for months. You've been excited about it. You've been waiting for this. You, you may have some friends who live a little further south than you do. And, 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 and they're anticipating. They got their needs met a little bit earlier than you did. And you just couldn't wait. You took pictures of this. You put it on Facebook. You were so excited because this week... Bluebell came back to North Texas, huh? Yeah, you're excited, weren't you? How many ate some Bluebell this week? Yeah? My wife, here's what my wife did. So Friday is my day off. So she went and bought my favorite ice cream, cookies and cream, Bluebell ice cream on Friday. And then she left for the weekend. And it's gone. It is totally gone. So to mark that, uh, we have here a Bluebell hat that was uh, donated by a member of our church who works for Bluebell. So there's your hat. All right. And there's one upstairs. And then after the service for both of you winners, uh, there is a half gallon of cookies and cream ice cream for you. Okay. That's, and I, (laughs) yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah. So, uh. I picked cookies and cream just in case you didn't like that, and then I, I could eat it. I, I, I could eat it for you. So, uh, really excited about Bluebell. So I just wanted to do. That has nothing to do with the sermon today, but I just wanted to do it for fun. So we uh, started last week this series with this idea, uh, this conviction that God has a dream for our lives. That's that's what we said was the starting point, the foundation of the series. God has a dream for our lives. God has a dream for you. God has a dream for me. God has a dream for our life together. And the one thing that we're talking about is the one thing that often separates us from the realization of that dream. And that comes from the scripture we looked at last week. You remember uh, a man who comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's his way of expressing, what what must I do to live into these dreams that you have for my life? And Jesus gives him a couple of things, and he says, well, I'm good in all those areas. And he says, well, there's one thing you lack. And the thing that he identified for him was the idea of living into this, this vision of a life of abundant generosity. And we said that that's often the one thing that separates us from the realization of God's dreams as well, living an abundantly generous life. We talked about last week, what is the vision of that? Why is that so important to God that we would live an abundantly generous life? We said that you are never more like Jesus than when you are being generous. 
because Jesus was the most generous person who ever lived. So anyone who desires to follow Jesus, this is one of those characteristics. This is something that we need to live into in our life is to live an abundantly generous life. It not only fuels the dreams that God has for our lives and for our life together, but also fuels our transformation as well. We'll talk a little bit more about that today, but that's what we're looking at in this series. So last week we talked about the vision, the vision to see the dream. What does it look like to live an abundantly generous life? How important it is to capture that vision if we're gonna live into that. Today we're talking about courage. We're talking about the courage to take a chance. And I wanna just, uh, we're looking at this because we wanna talk about that it really is an act of courage to live an abundantly generous life. This is a struggle for many of us to live into because we live in a world that tells us that success and significance is about accumulation. It's about who has the biggest barn, right? Uh, Who has the most resources. That's the message that our world continually preaches to us. And so when we open the scriptures, when we turn to the gospels and we read the teachings of Jesus, we are challenged in that our world says that significance is about accumulation. And Jesus says significance is about sacrifice. Over and over and over again, he calls us back to this. A a world says that success is about what you have gained, and Jesus says success is about what you have have given. And those bump up against each other every single day for us as we think about what does it mean to live a successful and a significant life. And I think God understands that. That's why in the scriptures, there's so much about this. In fact, you may not know this, you may never thought about this, but if you read through the gospels, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about love. Now just think about that for a second. I mean, Jesus is, he, he's really into this love thing. He believes in that, right? He came to be a sacrifice, an expression of God's love, but he talked about this subject Uh, More often than that, and in the scriptures, this is the one thing that, 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 that the scriptures talk about and give us a really specific way of how we live into this vision. Here's what it is. If you read Old Testament, New Testament, it'll talk about the principle of the tithe. If you've never heard that word, let me just tell you what that means. The principle of the tithe is the principle of first fruit. So it's when you receive the first fruit of what you receive, you give back to God. So you go back to Old Testament times, the idea of of harvesting a a crop and and what you did, you took the first fruits of that crop and you gave them back to God. And the reason that you do that, the reason that you offer back that that 10% tithe to God is first to say, God, thank you. God, thank you for my life. It's a recognition. It's a way of saying to God, God, I see that everything in my life comes from you. Every good and perfect gift, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's a way of saying, God, I I have not missed that. I understand what the source of my life is, and I want to give you thanks and praise. It's secondly a way of saying, God, I trust you today. I trust you for today, and I trust you for tomorrow. And it's thirdly, we're going to talk more about this next week, it is a way that we reinvest in God's kingdom. It's a way that we pour our resources into the work that God is doing in the world. It's a way of saying, God, we want to partner with you in seeing what your will is realized in our life, in our church, in our community, and around the world. We are investing with God into God's kingdom, what God is doing in the world. But what does it look like to to live a life with courage, the courage to take a chance? So we're going to look at what I think 
is the most courageous act in all of scriptures. But before we get there, I just want to read to you Malachi 3.10. So it, uh, throughout the entire scriptures, this is the only place that I have found where God actually challenges us to test him. Listen to what it says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. And don't get sidetracked here. This is not bait and switch. This is not give to God and he'll give you a bigger boat. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the blessings of God's presence, the blessings of knowing that you can live a life where you live in trust with God. It's about transformation of your heart and your life, the blessings of God's presence in your life. So let's look at courage. And what does it look like to live a life of courage? We're going to look at Matthew 14. And let me just give you a little bit of information about what's happening here as we kind of dive into this text. So we're about halfway through Matthew's gospel. And Jesus is preaching in the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Now, I can remember as a kid reading this, and, and, and you hear about the Sea of Galilee over and over again in the scriptures, and I sort of had in my mind this, like, big ocean. You know, what do you picture when you see the Sea of Galilee? Well, let me show you what the Sea of Galilee looks like. We were there a couple years ago. The Sea of Galilee, in Texas terms, is a lake, okay? That's what it is. It's a lake. It's not a sea. It's not an ocean, right? It's just a really large lake. It's a freshwater lake in Israel. If you look at kind of a map of the Holy Land, this is in the northern area. The Sea of Galilee empties into the Jordan River. The Jordan River uh, flows south, and it ends at the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the entire earth. Uh, that's the Dead Sea. So that's kind of the geography of the Holy Land. Jesus spent most of his public ministry in the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. This is actually a picture from the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus shared the Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful, beautiful area. Many villages located all around this lake. Most of those who lived in these villages were fishermen. So, so Andrew and Peter, some of the first disciples who lived in Capernaum, a very small fishing village right there on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that's where Jesus came to live er, er, very early on in his ministry. And, and Jesus just traveled all around this area surrounding the Sea of Galilee, all the villages and towns that were located there. And the way in which Jesus often traveled between these villages is he would use the sea. He would use the large lake. And so they'd bring their boat up. They'd dock the boat. Jesus would get out. The crowds would come. And he would preach to them. And then when the crowds got really, really large, the lake was the escape route. Okay? That's how Jesus got away. And that's how he would show up at a different place. And he would go there. And then the crowds would come. And it would all be repeated over, over again. So right before this, in John 14, uh, is, is the episode of the feeding of the 5,000. So there's a lot of people who have come out to hear Jesus teach and, and he and his disciples are about to make their exit again. So verse 22, it says this. Immediately, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So I won't just picture this with me. Gathers the disciples together. Hey, great, great afternoon, guys. I mean, we just fed 5,000 people. You go ahead and take the boat, the boat, the one boat that we have, go ahead and go across, and, and I'm going to just dismiss the crowd. Now, if you're the disciples, you're probably thinking, we have one boat. Okay, he's Jesus. He's going to do, you know, I don't know how he's going to catch up, but he's going to do whatever he wants to do. I mean, maybe he doesn't remember that we're his ride. You ever done that? Like, <laughs> gone somewhere and, oh, my ride left. Yeah, okay, so 
He dismisses them. Verse 23, after he had dismissed them, he dismisses the crowds. He, Jesus, went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. So if you're looking at this picture still, you can see the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. The reason why the waters of this lake act in a way that's very similar to the sea or to the ocean is because of the winds that come over the mountain and the winds that come through the valley passes that, that connect the other areas, and they, they cause a stir uh, in, in the waters. When we were there, we took a nice, smooth boat ride across the Sea of Galilee in the morning, and by noon, the waters were just going crazy. I mean, waves just like you'd see at the ocean because of these winds. So he dismisses them. Jesus goes up to the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, maybe thinking, hey, where'd my ride go? He was there alone, and the boat... The boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Verse 25, shortly before dawn. So let's picture 4 o'clock in the morning. When's the last time you saw 4 o'clock in the morning? Think about that. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Because he's Jesus, okay? That's what he can do. He just decides, I'm just going to walk out there. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they said, wow, that's interesting. No, that's not what it says. It says, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. So the disciples are in the boat. They're traveling across the Sea Galilee. It's a lake, but it's a big lake. And they're, about, they're, they're, they're there in the middle of the sea, probably you know, a little bit groggy, sleeping there in, in the boat. And they look up and they see a man walking on the water. Now, just again, this is new, all right? They've not seen this before. It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, I just went, what, what do you think that looked like? The disciples cried. Do you think it was like in King James English? Lo, I see someone walking on the water. No. I mean, it was like screaming like, a, there's a ghost on the water. And then listen, listen what happens next. Uh, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you were in that boat, you would be the disciple who screamed back, exactly who is I? <laughs> take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Verse 28, come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now, if you have your Bible, just, just close your Bible, okay? I want you to close your Bible. I really, really wish today that we could just stop at verse 29, and we'd be like, wow, Peter and Jesus are walking on the water. That's pretty cool. But, but here's the problem with that. Most of you have heard this story before, and you know what happens in verse 30. And just in case you don't know, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. I'm just going to tell you what happens in verse 30 so that you, everybody knows what happens because I just can't stop at 29. I know half of you know, so let me just tell you what happens. So follow the sequence here, okay? Jesus says, hey, y'all take the boat. I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. Go out on the water. Jesus goes and prays. Middle of the night, he walks across the water. Disciples scream, ah, it is I. Who is I? And then Peter says, if it's you. Tell me to come out of the boat and walk on the water. And, and Peter does that. 
he, he focusing on this, this ghost, this presence that has the voice of Jesus, he walks out on the water. And then what happens in verse 30 is, uh, what verse 30 tells us is that Peter noticed, he kind of had that moment where he was like, Look what I'm doing. He notices, he notices the winds and, and the waters, and he takes his eyes off Jesus. And verse 30 tells us that he begins to sink. That's kind of interesting. He doesn't sink. He doesn't just fall in the water. It's more like, Ooh, and he just starts kind of sinking down into the water. And he cries out, Jesus, save me. And, and Jesus comes along and says, here you go. Picks him up and saves him. Now, the reason I would love to stop at verse 29 is because I think when you read verse 30, you run the risk of missing the point. And the reason I know this is because I've heard lots and lots of sermons about Matthew chapter 14. I've heard lots and lots of sermons about this, this, this episode in the, in the 14th chapter of Peter walking on the water. And of all the sermons that I've heard and everything that I've read about this, this text, they all tend to kind of land at this application. So preacher reads the scripture, talks about what happened, Peter got out of the boat, but then Peter took his eyes off Jesus, poor Peter. He was doing so well. He was walking on the water with Jesus, but then Peter took his eyes off Jesus, and he started to sink. So don't be like Peter. Don't be like Peter. Don't take your eyes off Jesus, because if you take your eyes off Jesus, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start to sink. Life's going to get messed up. You're going to start to sink if you take... Don't be like Peter. Whatever you do, go church, and don't be like Peter. Don't be like the guy who took his eyes off Jesus and found himself sinking into the water. Poor, poor Peter. Now, what you want to imagine, what if Peter was sitting right there today and that, was the, and that was the message for today? I mean, don't you think he would say, I would like a moment for rebuttal here, please? Do you think he might say, you know, there were 11 other guys who stayed in the boat. What about them? I... Walked on water. Do you think Peter used that as a trump card at some point in his life? Like later on, like with the disciples, they're trying to figure out where they're going to go for lunch. And Peter says, I want to go here. And they're like, ah, no, 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 no. How many of y'all walked on water? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody? Was this, was this for, what do you think this moment was for Peter? What do you think it was for him? For the rest of his life, for the rest of his days, what do you think this moment meant for him? Do you think this was a moment that he looked back on and he thought, man, I should have just kept my eyes on Jesus. I messed everything up. Or do you think he might have thought, I walked on water. <laughs> what do you think you would have thought? Would this for you have been a moment of failure? Or would it have been a moment of faith? You see, there were 11 guys who didn't get out of the boat. There were 11 guys who were back here going, ah, there's a ghost. And Peter's the one who says, if it's you, if it's you, Jesus, then call me out onto the water. And he does. He says, come. And, and Peter gets out of the boat, and he, he walks on water. Now, why did Peter do that? Did he do that because he knew exactly what was going to happen? He's like, oh, I bet I can walk on water too. looks pretty easy. Jesus is doing it. I bet I can do that too. Or did Peter do that because he had this crazy 
crazy idea that said, you know what? I can trust Jesus. I think I can trust Jesus. And you know what's amazing about this moment in Matthew chapter 14? Peter had the opportunity, and not, not many of us get this, but Peter had the opportunity to actually take a step to do something that he had never in his life done before, and for the rest of his life, he could never explain how it happened, but he had the opportunity to take a step, a step that was made by faith, a step that was made with this sneaking suspicion, this crazy notion that he could trust Jesus, and he had verifiable proof that he could. He walked on water. I bet he didn't forget that. I bet he didn't forget that. I bet that moment for him was not a moment that he looked back and said, oh man, I wish I hadn't taken my eyes off Jesus. I bet it was a moment where he said, I am absolutely, I have proof. I can trust, I can trust Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Where does courage come from? Have you thought about that? I mean, I, I hope you've thought about that. I hope, you, I hope your desire is to live a courageous life. I mean, I, I hope that your ambition for your life is more than just taking up space and eating bluebell ice cream, okay? Even though it's great, right? I hope you have an ambition beyond that. I hope you long to live a career. I hope you long to do something with your life that will mean something to the next generation and the generation after that. I hope that you have that desire in your life to live a courageous life. And if you have that, have you thought about that question? Where does courage come from? How does courage grow in your life? How is it that some people find themselves at a moment like this where, they, where, where Peter is the only one who says, I'm going. I mean, have you ever had that sense, like you looked at someone else's life, at what they did, and you thought, where did they get that? Where did that come from? Where does courage come from, and how does courage grow? Let me just suggest to you this simple idea, that acts of courage are what lead to more courage. It's when we take that first step, and then after taking that first step, we say, you know what? I think I can take another step. <laughs> I did and then a third, and then a fourth. Acts of courage are what lead to more courage. Let me prove it to you, okay? You don't, you don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you were just to flip over to Acts chapter 2, this is after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? This is much later on in the story. This same guy who took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink, but walked on water that night, he is in Jerusalem about 40 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, okay? Jesus has just been killed in a very public and gruesome way. It didn't end well, okay? As far as the people of Jerusalem were concerned, the person whose team you didn't want to be on at that point was Jesus' team. But Peter gets up in the center of Jerusalem, also known as the hornet's nest, okay? He goes right back into that place, the place where Jesus was arrested and crucified, and he stands up and he preaches a message about Jesus. And in that message, it's the whole chapter two, so I can't read the whole thing to you, but Peter says this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In the middle of Jerusalem, 
This is suicide. This is not smart, okay? This is not like, I'm going to talk to my friends. Hey, do you think this is a good idea? Sure. No, nobody said that. They're like, what? You're going to do what? You're going to get up in front of all these people, the people who crucified Jesus, and declare that he is the Messiah and the Lord? This is crazy. Where did Peter get that courage? Do you think somewhere in the back of his mind that day, there was that memory of getting out of the boat and taking that first step. You think somewhere in, in his heart, in his recollection, he, he had that moment there with him in his mind and, and what led him to that act of incredible courage was the remembrance. I walked on water. <laughs> I can trust Jesus. I don't care what they do to me. I don't care what they do. I have learned by taking a step and then another step and then another step. I have learned that I can trust Jesus. So I started this message a, a few moments ago by talking about tithing. And I know some of you were like, oh gosh, I was going to sleep in today. Because you're thinking, that's crazy. I can't get out of the boat on that. That is crazy. You, you may, we may have some OCD people here. You've got the Excel spreadsheet in your head right now. You spend so much time. It is in, and you're thinking, how, how, how would I ever do that? And I would just challenge you in this way. Don't allow your fear of jumping out of the boat to prevent you from taking a step. Because every step that you take in moving towards living an abundantly generous life is a step where your courage will grow, where your trust in Jesus will be affirmed, and the worry and fear that may be present in that moment for you right now will begin to diminish. And eventually over the course of your life, you'll, you'll see it fade away. Because as trust grows, this is the same dynamic as love. As love grows in your life, fear will decrease in your life. As an understanding of God's love for you grows, the fear you have will decrease. In the same way your trust, that's an interesting phone. Uh, if the, the trust, as trust, in, if you're upstairs, there was just a duck call in here. So don't worry about it. I think that's what it was. It was so as trust grows, I'll just keep going. Trust grows in your life. Worry decreases in your life. So if you were here last week, I talked about how my life, my, uh, my practice of tithing started in my life. It was when I was in college, uh, a poor, poor college student. And my campus minister got a hold of me and, and convinced me that this was a principle and a practice that I had to live into. If I felt called to ministry, it was something that I was going to have to do. That was one of the reasons that I did it. Uh, here's the second reason that I did it, is I, I worked for him. Uh, and in working for him as an intern there in that, in that ministry, I had to raise my salary. He didn't tell me that at first. He was like, you want the job? Yes. Okay, you have to raise your salary. <gasps> and, and this was the idea. The idea was, it was, it was he, he sought me out. He said, I know you feel called to ministry. I want you to serve in this ministry, and I want you to send letters to the people who know you best and I want you to ask them to give to this ministry to support this calling that you have in your life. And of course, at that point, I was thinking, you know what? 
McDonald's. I'll flip burgers. I'll do something else. Because that, was, that was way outside my comfort zone. But the reason for the challenge was this. He wanted me to have the opportunity to reach out to people that I know and for me to see in a tangible way, David, these people believe in you. These people believe in you. I'm going to tell you next week about one of those families that, that wrote me a check every single week. And that process of receiving absolutely changed my life. And it was their sacrifice that did that. It changed my life. So people were sacrificing to give to me. And so this idea of giving to others. So I took my 60 bucks out of my $600 salary and I gave it away. And someone asked me, I told you that last week. Someone asked me this last week, what did that do for you? Like, did you find yourself the next month like really needing $60? And I thought, well, I made $600. My rent was a hundred bucks. You know, I was a poor college student. No. That was my answer. No, I didn't. I didn't. I don't have a story like, you know, well, somebody stole my bike, and then I needed $60, and then I read Malachi 310, and 60 bucks showed. No, I don't have a story like that. <laughs> but what did it do for me? Well, it helped me to see that I could trust Jesus. That's what it did for me. It helped me to see with that first step, I can trust Jesus. And every step that I have taken since then and every step that my wife and I now take together in the way that we organize our life, it's another opportunity to, to hear God affirm in our life, you can trust me. You can trust me. And so for us in, in our life, living out of this principle of giving away 10% of what we, what we bring in years into this process, it's, it's simply a reaffirmation. We can trust Jesus and we have the tremendous opportunity to see our sacrifice go, be poured into things that are changing people's lives. There's nothing better than that. There's absolutely nothing better than that. It's changed my life. It's changed my marriage. And for my children as they grow, it is one of the things that I, I really want them to develop in their own life. Because I'm convinced that it will change their life. So next week we're having Commitment Weekend. You already heard me, heard me talk about this. And you already heard me say this, but I want to say it again. Why, why do we do this? We do this because... First, it helps our leaders, your pastors and your lay leaders, make wise decisions about our future. This is a little free financial advice. The, the first thing that you need to know in planning out your finances is how much money you have. That's an important thing. Like if you have this much, you shouldn't spend this much. There's your free financial advice for the day, okay? Stop spending this much because you're making this much, okay? So when we as a church are able to estimate what our giving will be, it helps us as a church make wise decisions for our future. Because here's what it's like to be a pastor or a lay leader in this church. To, to, to step into that role is to stand in the gap between God's vision and what we feel like God is calling us to do and what our congregation is saying we can do. That's the gap in which we live, and we seek to make wise decisions in that gap. And when we make wise decisions, what it means is that your sacrifice has the maximum impact on God's kingdom. And that's what we want to do. I, I, I want to I be a pastor that says to you, I can ensure that your sacrifice is going to make the maximum impact on God's kingdom. But here's the other reason we do it. We do it because commitments matter. Your life hinges on commitments. 
It hinges on commitments. Who you will become is in very, it is very much a product of how you live into the commitments that you make in your life. And when we make commitments, I think it's important along the way to be challenged to take another step. Because every step that we take is a step where God can again affirm in our life that we can trust him. We can trust him. So if you're at nowhere, take a step. I don't have to bite off the whole apple. I understand that. I know you're thinking, ah, that's okay. Take a step. If you're moving in that direction, take another step. Take another step. And, and in that, know that it will be an opportunity for God to affirm again in your life. You can trust him. You can absolutely trust him. So here's the point of this message on Matthew 14. It's not don't be like Peter. It's be like Peter. <laughs> Be the one who, when you hear the voice of Jesus, you know, and you act in such a way that says, I can trust him. He will not let me fall. I can trust Jesus. And every step you take, here's my guarantee, your courage will grow. And that worry will begin to fade. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pause this day first to give you thanks for the gift of life, to give you thanks, Lord, for the, the rich blessings that you have poured into our life, for the people that we share life with, for our families, for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to participate in the work of your kingdom, to be people who have not only received grace, Lord, but also people who have the, the privilege and the honor to participate in that grace, to share that grace with others. And Lord, as we think about what that looks like in our life, I pray that you, by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our life, would enable us to live with courage to be people who are willing to risk, to take a chance, to step out in faith. And with each step that we take, Lord, to know that you will be there with us and you will not let us fall. You will not let us fall. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and the challenge of living an abundantly generous life. And we pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will find us faithful and that because of our faithfulness, Lord, we may see your dreams come true. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.